praise God, gives talent to his people. So I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here. We love Cornerstone, and my family and I are so thankful for you and your ministry to us and with us on the campus of UAH. Um, Wilson has been a friend and a colleague and an encouragement to me since he's been here as well, and many of you have been. Uh, so I always love visiting with you. I, I'm a teaching elder in the PCA, which means I'm a teaching elder in the PCA, but I don't have a Sunday pulpit. I work on the college campus, so essentially the campus is my pulpit, which means Sundays I'm free to fill in uh, for different guys around the area, and I get to, to fill in a lot of different churches. And what that also means is I always preach this Sunday every year, no matter what. Always. <laughs> There's certain Sundays of the year, the one after Thanksgiving, guaranteed I'm going to get three phone calls for that week. This Sunday, Wilson booked me, booked me, but he called me like four months ago because there's several other people who were out this week as well. It's one of those kind of weeks, which you would think that would mean I would have like a really good New Year's Eve sermon ready to go. I did not. Uh, and, and I started thinking about this passage that we're going to come to this morning. Let me tell you why it has the title New Year's Eve in Jerusalem. It's a bit of a stretch. Not too, I don't think it's heresy. It's not too much of a stretch. But I read somewhere uh, at one point that Zechariah was given, uh, he was given eight visions. Now, this part's definitely true. He was given eight visions by God to give uh, to the people of God when they had returned from exile. I'll give you a little more context in a minute. Um, and this is the fourth of those visions. I read somewhere, and I'm not sure where it was, that all of these visions were given to Zechariah on the last day of the year, thus New Year's Eve. And he's in Jerusalem. And I actually think this vision has so much to do with the way that we can reorient as we start thinking about 2015 as well. And so we're going to consider it kind of in, in that light, um, New Year's Eve in Jerusalem. Let's read the passage of Zechariah 3. I'm not sure how familiar you are with this prophet. Uh, you don't hear from Zechariah a whole lot, but after God had sent his people into exile by their enemies, after a time he brought them back to their land, and this was about 500 years before Christ, so this is around 510 B.C., and God's people weren't doing the main thing that he told them to do when they went back to the land, and that was to rebuild the temple. And so God sent a number of prophets, uh, three at the end of the Old Testament, to tell them, start building, start building, start building the temple again. So Zechariah was one of those prophets, and so he had this word from the Lord to his people. And this was a vision that God gave him to communicate to the people of God. Here from Zechariah chapter 3. Then... He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, this is Zechariah, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says, If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will 
Govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I've set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. God, I do pray that you would help us to understand your word this morning. This is a vision, and there's some um, things that are a little confusing, of course, for us. I pray, Lord, that we would see Jesus jumping off the pages of this vision. From Zechariah's life. I, I pray, Lord, that you would minister to us. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Uh, I don't know how 2014 has been for you. Um, I know for you as a church, it, it's been great from, from all reports I've seen and the way the Lord has continued to bless this ministry. For you personally, I don't know what kind of year it's been. Uh, maybe you've this has been a devastating year for you, maybe loss of uh, friends or family members, um, difficulties at home, uh, job issues. Maybe it's been a great year of celebration. Some of you had wonderful marriages this year in your family or births of babies and all sorts of great things to celebrate. I don't know what this year's been for you, um, but my hope is that kind of as we close out this year, and this is literally the end, we're going to start writing 2015 on all of our checks, and we're going to write it wrong for six months, and then it'll be 2016. But for now, we're moving into this new year, and I hope that this passage will be a, a it's a high hope, but I hope that what stands out in this passage, this amazing scene, will be something that guides you into the new year and, and ministers to your heart all year long. This passage has been so good for me over the last couple of years, because I, I don't know if you're like me, I tend to justify myself about 24 hours of my day. What I mean by that is I'm constantly looking for ways to, to feel better about me. I think constantly in life we are waffling between this kind of place of self-despair and self-celebration, and we are looking for things to, to kind of make us hang out in the self-celebration area, but often when we don't measure up to the things that we're looking for to be celebrated, then we're moving into self-despair. I justify myself all the time, whether it's by my, my position or my paycheck or by how I care about my appearance or how you think of my appearance, my Facebook profile, whatever. I'm, I'm constantly, I think, presenting this is what 2014 has done for me, is God's helping me see a lot of this that's been really hard for me. But I'm constantly presenting an image to people to say, approve of me. Make me feel better about me. And I'm seeking to justify myself all the time. And this passage, this passage is so hard, but this passage is so good because it tells us exactly who we are. So there's no sense of trying to justify ourselves by our own actions, by our self-righteousness, by our image, by our position or paycheck or whatever. But at the same time, it tells us who we are to God. And there's something way better about that part in this passage. The whole scene is, I think, pretty easy to picture. It's a courtroom scene. 
Some of you spend time in courtroom, hopefully on the right side. You're attorneys and lawyers and judges, and, and you, or at least you've seen Judge Judy. You can picture this scene really easily. There's all these kind of people in, in the courtroom. I want to give you the parties involved, and then we're kind of going to look at what happens. Um, there's basically five different parties. You have a, a judge, a prosecutor, a defendant, all these different people. The judge is, is the angel of the Lord. This is every time the angel of the Lord speaks as the judge, you've got a picture that that's God himself speaking. So every time the judge speaks, this is God speaking and handing down a verdict in this passage. Then you have Joshua, the high priest. He is the defendant. He's the one standing silently before the judge. Joshua never speaks in this passage, but he's the one standing silently before the judge waiting for the verdict. Now, this particular Joshua is not the Joshua that you normally think of from the Old Testament. This isn't Joshua from Moses' day, Joshua. This is another Joshua. He's a high priest. That's really important because a high priest had a job to do. In the Old Testament, in the old system, the high priest was the one man on earth who was appointed by God to represent God's people and to make atonement for their sins, to make sacrifices so that they could be forgiven of their sins. And on one day of the year particularly, the day of atonement, he would have to be, he would go through all these kind of ceremonial cleansings so that he would be very clean and pure so he could go into the Holy of Holies to make sacrifices on behalf of all the sins of the people of God. Big job, right? There's a problem though. He's, he's, not, he's not as holy as you would hope that he would be. That's the problem in the passage, but he's the defendant. Then you have the prosecutor. That's Satan, Notice it says that Satan is standing to the right of Joshua, accusing him. In Hebrew, the word um, for Satan is the word accuser. It's the same word. It's what he does. It's who he is. Satan is the prosecutor who's just pointing, 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 saying guilt, 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 guilt. Look at your guilt. That's what he does. That's what he's always been doing. Then you have Zechariah, who is... Basically, he's the, the court reporter, you know, the little person on the, 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 the thing up at the front, and they're just typing. The court reporter, as far as I know, I don't, I don't know for sure, but the court reporter, it seems like they have one job to do, and that is take notes. The one thing I think a court reporter is probably not supposed to do is talk. He gets that part wrong. We'll come to see in a second, too. And the, the rest of the party is basically the, the heavenly council is the witnesses who are kind of seeing this whole thing unfold. All right, you got the picture in mind? You can see it. It's a courtroom scene. All right, notice how it begins. It, is, it begins with such drama because you have the judge at the front of the court and he is rebuking someone in the court, but he doesn't rebuke who you think he's going to rebuke. He doesn't rebuke the defendant, the one who's standing over here who's actually guilty, which we'll see, but he actually rebukes the, the prosecutor. The story opens with God saying, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you. Why? Satan was actually, he was pointing out the sins of Joshua. And what's so interesting is that he wasn't lying. You know, Satan lies. He is the father of lies. That's what he does. But in this passage, he's actually not lying. Because the problem in this passage is that the defendant, Joshua, is guilty. He's standing there guilty, and Satan is pointing out his guilt over and over again and saying, look, judge, look at his guilt. And what does the judge say? The judge says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you. 
But why is that the case? Joshua is guilty. The high priest, it was evident to everyone in the courtroom, you see in verse 3, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel of the Lord. Now, I think our translations are a little bit childproof here, which is good. We have children in the room. But the word for um, filthy is a lot more than filthy. It's kind of a gentle and sweet word, filthy. The idea of that Joshua is actually standing before the courtroom in wretched, repulsive, awful, clothes dripping with excrement. That's actually what the picture is. And so there's Joshua. Everyone sees it. He's dirty. He's covered. And there's no way around it. Joshua the high priest, the one person who's on earth to represent God's people by being clean, stands before the court totally filthy. Obviously, this is pointing to something more than just his clothes. The idea here is that Joshua the high priest stands before the court as a defiled sinner. And his gross garments are really just a reflection of his gross heart, his hidden secrets, his perverted thoughts, his terrible motives, his self-righteous lies, and yours too, and mine too. And so essentially, Joshua is me and you standing before the court, guilty. Guilty. Look at his guilt. And Satan stands there and says, look, God, a sinner. And he's absolutely right. But this is a problem, isn't it? For God's people especially, because this is the one person on earth who's there to represent them, to make sacrifices for them so that they could be forgiven of their sins, but he stands guilty. Their hope was set on the goodness of this one person. And if it is true that he is guilty, then they are all condemned. That's the burden that this passage presents. But that's why what God says to the court is so amazing, because he doesn't say, the Lord rebuke you, Joshua. He says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Why? Because God had a plan for the guilty party in the room. This is so important for us this morning because we are, I think, constantly hearing the whispers of the prosecutor in our lives too. He is constantly whispering in our ears, look, God, a sinner. Look at your shame. Look at what you've done. Do you remember that thing? Can you believe that you said those things? Can you believe the mistakes that you made back then? Look, God, a sinner. And if he's not whispering that message, he's whispering another, look how good you are. You know, you don't have as many problems as the other people in the room. Like, your family actually didn't fight this week at Christmas like mine did. And you, when we compare ourselves to the people around us and we start to feel pretty good, that's Satan whispering, saying, look, you're doing pretty good, actually. And so what we need to realize is that Satan is still doing this work in our ears too. He's, he's either wanting us to not see our guilt or wanting to pile it on. Pile it on. Pile it on. Look, God, a sinner. 
But we've got to see what God does about it in this passage. He does two things, actually. Two really important things that God does to Joshua. And he does to us in the same way. The first is that he removes his filthy clothes. Listen to the drama of verse 4. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin. Those repulsive rags that Joshua was covered in before the court, those filthy garments that were really just a reflection of his heart, God says, I am taking that away from you. Let me have those filthy robes and let me set them aside. Essentially, Joshua, the guilty party, is being now declared by the judge not guilty. Do you ever wonder if God can really forgive you? Like, can God really forgive you, what you've done, what you've said, what you didn't say or didn't do? We have, a, uh, we have two daughters. Lucy is four and a half, and she's our wild card of a daughter for sure. And, uh, and Lucy, we're, we're kind of at that age where she's starting to really process life. <laughs> she's starting to process Jesus and, and, and lots of good things, and she's, she is not holy, that is for sure. But she's starting to think about things, and there was one night where she did something really mean to her little sister. I don't remember what it was. It, could be a thousand different things, but she was, she, she was kind of being very defensive about it afterwards, trying to cover it up, like she, like Jordan, our youngest daughter, really deserved it, and she kept saying, "But she did this to me. She did this to me. She did it." And she was just bowing up over and over and over again. And this was just a few weeks ago, I think. I went into her room. It was late at night, and it was the end of the night. She had just been this very defensive, defensive, defensive about this whole situation. And I went into her room, and I just felt bad for her because it was a picture of me. When somebody calls me on my sin, all I want to do is just, you know, bow up. And, and I just gave her a hug, and she just started weeping. Four and a half, she just started weeping. And she said, is it true? Is it true? I said, is what true? And she said, can God really forgive me? Y'all, that is exactly what's happening in this passage. Joshua standing before the court and God removing his filth and setting aside. And here you have Joshua saying, is it true? And he's exposed for a minute. He's exposed for a minute. And it's in this moment that I I want us to kind of feel the, the burden of this too because we need to see that he is exposed before he's reclothed. And what I mean by that is 2014 may be a year where God exposed you. Where God brought up things in your life or in your family that were just too much. Too hard to deal with. We need to see that God exposed Joshua before he could reclothe Joshua. That may be your biggest fear for 2015, by the way. You may be hiding right now. You may be so fearful that someone's going to find out. But you need to see that Joshua was exposed before he could be reclothed. And that is the next thing that happens. 
Not only is Joshua declared not guilty, but God does something about the guilt. After Joshua's filthy rags were removed, notice that it is God himself who, who reclothes Joshua. He takes aside his filthy rags and, and he then puts fine garments on him in verse 5. It's not because Joshua deserved it. That's clear and evident from this passage. It is not because Joshua had found a way to kind of work out of his guilt or to get his act together, to clean himself up. None of that happened. But in verse 5, verse 4, I'm sorry, the merciful judge says, See, I have taken away your sin and I will put, I will put fine garments on you. The verdict from the judge is handed down and he not only acquits Joshua, but he provides a new life for him. New clothes and even a new position. Zechariah, he's the court reporter. He's at the front of the room. The one thing a court reporter, I think, is supposed to be doing is taking notes. The one thing they're not supposed to do is talk. Notice what Zechariah does. He gets so caught up in the emotion of this scene. He's seeing this whole thing unfold, the garments being set aside, new garments being put on, and, and he's taking notes, and all of a sudden he just says, and put a turban on his head. He just yells out in the middle of the scene, put a turban on his head. Why in the world did he say that? It's a picture. It's such a beautiful picture. God clothes Joshua with new and fine and rich garments, and then Zechariah has an idea. Let's put a turban on his head. Why? Turbans are a sign of royalty. Right? And so what's happening here, and they do, they put a turban on his head. And so what's happening is that not only is Joshua declared not guilty, he is now declared royalty. Y'all, that is beautiful. What a beautiful picture. How is this justice, though? You know, you look at this passage and you think, that's great and it's beautiful and it's wonderful, but it's not right. It's not. There's no justice. He's guilty. He's not being charged. He's not royalty. He's being declared royal. Why? It's because the next part of what happens in verse 8 and 9. I want to read this again, but let me warn you. There's some weird things going on here. There's seven eyes and a stone and all this kind of stuff. Um, there's a lot going on here, but I want you to hear a couple of promises in this these two verses in 8 and 9. How is this justice? This is how. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I've set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And this is what the inscription says. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. There's a couple of words here. The, the branch, the servant. These are messianic terms in the Old Testament. Terms that point directly, directly to something that would happen 500 years later. This ceremony is not without sacrifice. The wretched robes of Joshua had to be set aside somewhere in order for new robes to be supplied. And they were. And the day the Lord, it says, and I'll remove the sin of this land in a single day, the, Lord, the day the Lord was telling Zechariah 
to tell the people of God about, the day that his servant would come, and through him he would remove the sin of the land in a single day, that day would come some 500 years later. And what's amazing, Zechariah also holds a very famous prophecy that you probably heard this week at some point. Zechariah 9, 9, if you just turn one page, it says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 500 years later in the same town, just before New Year's Eve in Jerusalem, a man comes riding on a donkey. We call it the triumphal entry because this man, this Jesus, this king comes and the servant has come. This righteous branch has come into town to do this thing. To make a sacrifice for the people of God. Remember we asked the question, how in the world can God's people have any hope whatsoever if the one person on earth who is there to represent them before God stands guilty? This is how. Because a better Joshua would come. Jesus, whose name, if you know in Hebrew, would be Joshua. This high priest who is guilty here, now a new high priest, Jesus, comes along. This high priest, Joshua, who is there to make sacrifice for the people of God, the new high priest, Jesus, goes and makes a sacrifice, one sacrifice for the people of God. And he comes riding into town just before he goes to the cross to make that atonement for God's people once and for all. This, this ceremony, this Zachariah ceremony, is not without sacrifice. Because those dirty, wretched, repulsive robes of Joshua and you and me and all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our baggage and all of our mistakes and all of our fears and failures in 2014, 15, 2050 were put on Jesus when he took on the cross. And they were dealt with. And in an amazing exchange, Jesus' righteousness, his clean garments and his royal crown was given to us. And so God looks at you and he says, not guilty. He says, not guilty. And we are made part of God's royal family because of the sacrifices of God's Son. This New Year's Eve vision given to Zechariah, I think, uh, shatters our plans of ever justifying ourselves ever again. You know, we can try. We can, uh, we can, we can put up the best profile picture possible on Facebook and constantly Instagram ourselves to death to make it look like we have, the, we have our lives put together. Our Christmas cards say one story, but we know what's going on in our families. We can seek to justify ourselves by our position, but there will always be a position better. By our paycheck, but there will always be more. By our self-righteousness, our trying to be good, but we know the motives in our hearts. This shatters the idea that we can ever make ourselves right. But it gives us tremendous hope to the one who has made us right before God. Gives us tremendous hope to trust in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. I want to just close with a couple of applications here. Um, 
You can call them resolutions if you're into that kind of thing. They're not very specific. I think your resolutions are supposed to be very specific. My mom, I shouldn't say this. Is this recorded? Maybe not. My mom's resolution, my, my wife and I talk about this all the time. She, she wrote on her, on her refrigerator uh, a couple of years ago, here's my resolutions for 20-whatever. Um, eat better, exercise more, do good. I don't know. Something like so broad, that's not what you're supposed to make New Year's resolutions. This is not a New Year's resolution sermon, but they're supposed to be specific. Like drink less than three Dr. Peppers a day. That will be mine. 2014, my New Year's resolution was to eat only good hamburgers. <laughs> and I, I fulfilled that this year. Here's some resolutions for you. They're, not, they're, they're a little bit more broad. Number one is some of you uh, are, are stuck in your filthy rag. And you can very much identify with Joshua standing before the court guilty. And you have been spending the large part of 2014 trying to figure out a way out of those clothes. How can I stop doing this? How can I escape these temptations? You need to look to Jesus riding into town on a donkey with that triumphal entry. You need to look and see that you can't get out of those filthy rags, those wretched robes. But Jesus went to the cross for them. Some of you maybe have never trusted that Jesus really did die for your sins. That sounds good for other people, but did, did Jesus really suffer on the cross for your sins? Trust Him. In 2015, may that be the year where you begin to believe Others of you would say that you do believe the gospel at one level, that you are loved by God and you know that he cares about you, but you are living the majority of your days in verse 1 and not in verse 2. What I mean by that is you hear Satan's accusations far more loudly than you hear the Lord rebuking him. The Apostle Paul tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If that's true, that means Jesus took on all of your sin, all of it, when he took on the cross. That he took on all of your guilt, all of your shame, and all of its power in your lives when he took the nails into his hand. And Satan may remind you of your past, but I pray that you would hear the panting voice of Jesus on the cross when he says, It is finished. And so when Satan continually reminds you, look at what you've done. Look, God, a sinner. You would hear God saying, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. I have chosen him. That you would trust in the gospel, that there's no condemnation for you, that you are forgiven, that your rags have been exchanged, and that God sees you with a royal turban on your head and not an X on your chest trying to come after you. I'm sure you sing the song here uh, regularly. I love the second verse. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. The last thing I want to say is 
that understanding the grace of God in this way, I think this passage is full of God's grace to us, understanding the grace of God in this way, I think now gives us new motivation to fight sin in our lives. We don't fight sin in our lives so that we can work our way out of the filthy rags, but because look what God has done. Now we fight, we struggle, we war against our flesh and against the world and against Satan because look what God has done. We now want to honor him with our lives, with our work, with our relationships, with our kids, with our spouses, the way that we serve in the church. I don't even have time to go into the, there's a huge point in this passage about how obedience comes after grace not vice versa. There, there was this command about uh, if you will you know, do all these things, I will give you this, but that came after the rags had been exchanged. In other words, our love for Jesus comes after recognition of what he's done, not in order to win it. I was talking to uh, Coach Hooks. Y'all know Stephen Hooks? He's the coach at Westminster, um, high school football coach. Some of you maybe play for him. I was talking to him uh, last week, and he was telling me about the team this year and, um, and he was saying they had a good season. And he said it was actually, he said this team played as hard as any team he's coached before. They didn't have the best record. It was, it was a good record. He said the record was actually better than he expected it to be. And he said, this has just stood out to me. He said, I think this team knows that I love them. These boys know that I love them. And it's like they played harder this year because of it. Isn't that the gospel? When we know what God has done, how he loves us, how he cares for us, we want to honor him with our lives. We want to repent. We want to confess. We want to deal with this stuff. Why pursue holiness even at a great cost? Because God pursued us even at a greater cost. Why fight sin and struggle and wrestle with our own doubt and our own lust and our own hatred and bitterness and greed? Why? Because Jesus struggled on the cross to give us now the freedom to fight. I hope 2015 is a good year for you. I hope it's a year where you uh, love this gospel of Jesus more than you ever have and that you would see that your justification before God comes by him taking Jesus' righteous rags and putting them on you. And we have freedom to fight against our sin and love the people around us because of how good God has been to us. Let's pray. Lord, this passage is so much. It is heavy. It is good. Lord, I know I have not done justice to it. Uh, we could study this a year long and it would just continue to amaze us. I pray that your spirit would apply your truth to our hearts, that we would love you, worship you, serve you, honor you in response to your kindness to us. Jesus, thank you for coming, for riding in on town on a donkey, for laying down your life as a righteous sacrifice to atone for our sins. Jesus, we praise you. We give you glory and pray all this in your name. Amen.